Our text for today is Mark 12, 28 to 34. And if this is, seems uh, vaguely familiar to you, it's because it was also our text last week. And we return to it this time because there's a second part of what Jesus' teaching was. So I invite you to stand as we read from the Word of God. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, that is to ask Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege to come together to listen to your word and to worship you through your timeless truth. We ask you to reveal to us this morning your great love for us, even as we are reminded how we are to love our neighbors. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I'd like to give us some background today. Uh, I'm going to have us consider two more passages that really are not quite uh, related to this, but have some connection nevertheless that should become apparent as we go along. One is from the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. It's Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And the second one is from the New Testament, Matthew 25, 31 to 40. It's Jesus' comments on the final judgment. And you need not look them up. Uh, I will read them uh, from here. Uh, first, Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The second one comes from Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as shepherds separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the, his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see similarities here? Both of these reveal a heavenly scene. In Isaiah, it's the Lord on the throne, high and lifted up. In Matthew, it's the Son of, the Son of Man on his glorious throne. Both are surrounded by heavenly beings. For Isaiah, it's the multiple uh, six-winged seraphim. For Matthew, it's all the angels with him. Both reveal God over the whole world. Isaiah, the whole earth, is full of his glory. In Matthew, all nations are before him. Both reveal their glory. Both passages speak of our transcendent God, above and beyond this earthly existence where we are. Consider our triune God as transcendent. We tend to focus on Jesus sometimes in his incarnate state, his human nature. He is fully human, but he's also fully divine. And God the Father is spirit. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is love. The Holy Spirit is also love. He's also spirit. As we explore Mark today, which is our chief uh, text, keep this transcendence in mind. As Jesus confronts Sadducees and a scribe, try to hold heaven and earth in your mind at the same time. Now to our first point, the two-part commandment that Jesus gives. Now last week, you may recall, Jesus was confronted by Sadducees, and he answered their question. It was a question about resurrection, but it was designed to trap him. It was a story about a woman who married seven different brothers under their, um, their laws at the time, in the culture at the time, because she did not have any children. And when he did answer them, he silenced them in his wisdom. A scribe asked a follow-up question about the greatest commandment, and that's where we're going to focus today. This week, Jesus answers the scribe, who said, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied with the Shema from the Jewish text in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then Jesus continued from another passage, this time in Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
The scribe asked for the most important commandment of all. This suggests that he was looking for one commandment. But Jesus linked two commandments. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. Consider what Jesus was doing here. He was, first of all, being very problematic for Sadducees and Pharisees because they always wanted to look really good in front of God. They built themselves up really well. But they did it at the expense of the people who had a hard time living up to the requirements that they were creating. He also gives the scribe an unexpected answer because he was looking for one thing and it got two. And then Jesus shows us the complete duty of love. It's not enough to love only God. By all means, we love God, and he has the highest standard. It's with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. But we also need to love people. We need to love our neighbors. Now, there's a slightly lower standard here, but still a high bar. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's similar to the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, let me remind you of the two perspectives. And we'll start with the first one, the one that's most obvious here. We're going to view this scene from the ground level, as if we were there as Jesus is speaking to the scribe. And you can imagine what it's like to be around the temple in the, in the dusty Middle East. You're likely to see Jesus, if you imagine this now, in his human nature as he's speaking. You're likely to be impressed with his answer as was the scribe. And he's likely speaking with authority because he always does. The Sadducees and the scribe are again confounded. The scribe asked this so that he could test him. It doesn't say so in Mark, but it does say so in the same uh, story in Matthew. The scribe is a lawyer specially trained to interpret the law. As a former lawyer myself, I've seen plenty of lawyers walk up ready to test somebody. And I can, in my mind's eye, imagine Jesus having just confounded the Sadducees with the whole resurrection story of the woman with seven husbands. This scribe comes up and goes, my turn. What is the greatest commandment? I'm going to test him because I have the specialized knowledge. Well, the question might be controversial because the Sadducees and Pharisees don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. But after Jesus answers him, the scribe has to agree with Jesus. Love is more important than burned offerings and sacrifices and all of the ceremonies that we have. The command we have is to love God and to love our neighbor. This is also good theater. It's drama. If you're standing there watching this whole scene, you've just seen Jesus best the Sadducees and scribes one more time. And Jesus does it with the truth. There's nothing unusual or snarky about what he does. He just presents the truth. And they are again confounded. Now, if you can, this is much harder, try to imagine looking at the scene from heaven. 
you have a heavenly view of the incarnate Christ and you're looking down from the throne room of God, so to speak. I know we're not there yet. But in your imagination, look from that perspective. You hear a two-part command, maybe for the first time. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. One sweeping answer with two parts. All the law and the prophets summed up in one command. He lays out exactly how we are to live. And it's easy to see how the Father loves the Son as he's watching this too. Now, why do I take these two views? Well, I think it's pretty easy sometimes to live our lives routinely, get caught up in the things that are coming at us. But we always ought to be trying to see things from a higher perspective as well. Somehow to live on two planes at the same time. So that brings us to how to love your neighbor, which is part two, point two. And here there are three parts. What are we to do? To whom are we to do it? And how are we to do it? Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence. I know you know the answers to these questions. But what are we to do? We are to love. Jesus spells it right out. If someone is hungry or thirsty, feed them, give them drink. If they are without adequate clothing or shelter, and many people in this world are, provide for their needs to the, ability, the best of your ability. If they are sick and hospitalized, visit them and see if there's anything you can do for them or for their families. We do that when people are hospitalized and bringing food to the families. If you are in business, use some of your business resources to help someone in need. If they are spiritually lost, share the gospel with them. Now, I'm pretty sure you have heard a description and characterization of Christianity as being all about one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Well, we know where the bread of life is. We know what the gospel is. We need to do this. We need to do it with love and compassion as every opportunity arises. The list is almost endless. I, I don't want to belabor the point because uh, you already know it. Find a need and fill it and do it with heart, with generosity, and with compassion. The second one is to whom are we to do it? Well, that's your neighbor. But who is our neighbor? I like the way Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, put it. He said, your neighbor is any person who is near you. Biblical examples would certainly include your family, people who live close to you, next door, down the street, in the apartment next to you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. This room is filled with neighbors of each other. And there are other churches around here with other people who are also your neighbors in the same sense. Anyone who needs your help, and who is in the vicinity wherever you are at the moment. I'm reminded of, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That took place near Jericho. 
Samaritans didn't ordinarily live near Jericho. But when he came upon, upon the person who was injured, he realized that this person, whom he did not know, was his neighbor. And we find ourselves in lots of different places, too. Look for neighbors there. The definition of a neighbor is quite flexible. When in doubt, I think you can assume that the person is your neighbor. After all, when we are commanded to love even our enemies, I think it's pretty likely that God's going to stretch the definition of a neighbor. And your neighbor is still your neighbor even if he or she is wealthy or poor, whether he or she shares your faith or not, whether this person is a competitor of yours or not, whether this person has offended you in the past or not, whether you like them or don't like them, whether he has a criminal record or not, whether he shares your politics or not, and probably most personal, if he wants to date your daughter and you would prefer he didn't. <laughs> so how are we to love well Jesus makes this clear too we are to love your neighbor you are to love your neighbor as yourself and by the way as I'm saying you 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 I am including myself in this the scripture uses that word I'm not preaching at you I'm trying to live it as I speak it most of us know what self-love is. It's the ordinary care you would give yourself. It can also be the care that is in your best interest. It doesn't require superhuman care, but it's also not the least common thing you could do. It's also not simply avoiding doing harm. Loving someone is an affirmative action. It is not simply declining to say something mean when you could or when you could destroy their reputation because you know something. Love is not neglect. Love is kind. And we could all go through 1 Corinthians 13 and get a much longer list, but mercifully I won't. In summary, love your neighbors with your neighbor's best interest in mind, consistent with your abilities, and prudent care for yourself and for that person. You need not and should not endanger yourself, but you should use good common sense. This brings us to the third point today. Not far from the kingdom of God, you know, the scribe acknowledged the truth of what Jesus said. He even summarized what Jesus said, acknowledged that love was greater than offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus acknowledged the scribe's wise answer. But he added, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God? Is this a good thing? Is this enough? Well, certainly not being far from the kingdom of God is being a whole lot better than being distant from the kingdom. But before I go further, let me digress for a moment. 
I remember some years ago, I think it was around year 2000, when I was watching Super Bowl 34 when the Rams were playing the Titans. It was the beginning of the second half, and the Rams were winning 16 to nothing. And then the Titans got a hold of their game, and they scored 16 unanswered points to tie the game with two minutes and 12 seconds left to go. The game really heated up at that point because the Rams scored seven points quickly, and with less than two minutes left to go, the Titans got the ball, but they got it on their own end of, his own, uh, end of the field. They were 88 yards from where they had to go, and they had less than two minutes to get there. The Titans actually got to the Ram 10-yard line. But they only had five seconds left on the clock. It was time for one play. A pass play was called. Kevin Dyson, a pretty good player at the time, caught the ball with tacklers draped all over him. And he lunged for the goal line, stretched out as far as he could. If you look at the pictures of him, he is just lateral looking, going to that goal line. Time runs out as he's going down, and the ball gets to the one-yard line. And the game is over. The Rams won 23-16. to 16. And as you watch Kevin Dyson stretched out on the ground, one yard from the end zone, the ball so close, in a football sort of way, you could say he was not far from the kingdom. But it's not where he wanted to be. Now let's go back to Jesus and the scribes, where we more proper, properly should be. I can sympathize with the scribe, even though he's a lawyer. Um, because he was able to see the wisdom of what Jesus said, and he was able to acknowledge it, and he went a step further to say that it was more than all the burnt offerings, excuse me, and sacrifices. Now, we might get close to living out the great commandment and still end up not far from the kingdom of God. You know, many people think they're basically pretty good people. And this is roughly akin to thinking that they love their neighbor as themselves. They equate this, however, with salvation. They believe that they live a good life, that they treat others as they would want to be treated. Well, someday, when their time is up here, they will be in heaven with God. But Jesus is not talking about salvation here. Jesus is talking about how we should live now. So let me be clear. If anyone here is not yet a Christian, anyone listening is in the same circumstance, this passage has nothing to do with salvation or going to heaven when you die. No one can live this commandment well enough to merit eternal life. No one is good enough. Entrance into the kingdom of God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Or as Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. If you're not yet a Christian, well, I would invite you to talk with the pastors here, or you're free to talk with me or anyone else who's a Christian. Salvation, however, is not the goal. It is the beginning. 
It is the threshold based on the gift of God. And what we are to do now is to love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. As we conclude, let me consider briefly one more time Jesus' words in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 34. This is part of what I read earlier. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. For those of us who have received the gift of salvation, although we are blessed by the Father, and those who will inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for them from the foundation of the world, we are to fulfill the greatest commandment. We are just beginning to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a manifestation of God's grace in your lives. Our obedience to the commandment is evidence of what Christ has done in our lives. What happens from our point of view here on earth as we live out the greatest commandment and it is a commandment that will have consequences not only here on earth, but also in the presence of Jesus on his glorious throne. Remember, the transcendent God watches over all that we do, loves us incredibly, and wants us to love in this manner. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, let us always remember that the grace you give us and the faith we receive in Christ in accordance with your scripture and to your glory leads each of us to live as best we can in accordance with your most important commandment, to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, when we fall short of this commandment and encourage us to fulfill it with your love so that we may go about our routine activities, and as we do so, we are continually trying to fulfill your greatest commandment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.